Sonic Solidarity is sponsored in part by the Michigan Council for the Arts and Humanities, the National Endowment for the Arts, our patrons at patreon.com, and listeners like you. Learn more about Detroit Sound Conservancy, browse hundreds of artifacts, oral histories, photographs, and recordings, and join our mailing list at DetroitSound.org. Welcome to uh, Sonic Solidarity. Uh, my name is Carlton Gold, Executive Director of Detroit Sound Conservancy. This is a recent podcast that we've begun since the COVID crisis emerged earlier this spring. I'm on the phone with Professor Rodney Whitaker, musician, uh, who we have met in our uh, work and progress towards uh, revitalizing and restoring the Bluebird Inn on Detroit's west side. Uh, Professor Whitaker, how are you? It's great to be here. I'm doing as well as can be expected under under the circumstances. Absolutely. Uh, Professor, uh, is it, do you mind if I call you Professor? You can call me Rodney. <laughs> Please. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll go for Rodney. Rodney, uh, briefly for our audience, who are you and, and how do you describe yourself and what you do and what is your relationship to uh, Detroit music? Well, I'm, 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 of course, I'm Rodney Whitaker. I'm a bassist, a jazz bassist from Detroit, which is what I'm known as internationally before become before being a professor. But also, I'm described myself as a father of seven children, a husband of one wife, and mm-hmm. uh, and that's that's who I am. But I also have performed with several notable international musicians. I played four years with Roy Hargrove two mm-hmm. years with Terrence Blanchard, and I performed for eight years with Wynton Marcellus, who I am still associated with uh, Jazz at Lincoln Center and uh, work in their education department. And um, and I play as a sub in the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra on occasion, a f- few times a year. And, uh, and I'm a professional musician. I still earn quite a bit of my income touring and playing and teaching and uh, I am a, I would consider myself a professional jazz musician. And we were talking about this before the phone call began. How, how, uh, how long has that arc been? What, you know, how many years uh, as a professional musician would you say? Well, I'm, I'm 52 years old and I started playing professionally about 15 years old. So what would the math be? I'm not good at math. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's higher math for me too. I'd, over over 35 years is, is right. what I'm going to have start, to there. Yeah, so I started I started pretty early, and that that's really you know Detroit. Detroit is a town that nurture bass players, and uh, when you're a young bass player, pe- people take particular interest in you, and they alert you to the legacy of people like Paul Chambers and Ron Carter and Doug Watkins and Cecil McBee. And for me, Marion Hayden and Ralph Armstrong and Robert Hurst. So for me, um, I felt the obligation and the responsibility to be a part of that legacy. And that was branded on me by the community. Where in Detroit or, or your experience in Detroit, were you a native Detroiter? Were you born in the city? Yeah, I grew. I, I'm the um, 
I'm actually a, a, a son of, of Southern immigrants or, or, or migrant. I, I'm not sure what the term is. Migrant. My parents migra- migra- migrated from uh, the South, from uh, Albany, Georgia, and they had uh, eight kids. I'm the baby of eight kids. And I'm actually the only kid in the family that was born in Detroit. Everyone else was born in Georgia. And my parents moved up in the 60s. Uh, to get to work in the auto industry. My father worked for Chrysler, and I grew up on the east side of Detroit. Went to Martin Luther King High School, Remus Robinson Middle School, and Keaton and Stark Elementary. So I'm a tried and true Detroiter. I grew up in the midst of it all. East side. East side. Deep east. Deep east. <laughs> in the 60s, and, and if you're, uh, you know, I'm estimating, I mean, if you're 52, though, your memory of something like, for instance, the rebellion, might you were just was, a kid at that point. You were, yeah, I was born six weeks, almost exactly six weeks after Martin Luther King's death. Six weeks before Martin Luther King's death. So early 1968. Yeah, I was born February 22nd. Okay. 68, and he was killed with April 4th, uh, 1968. So when you think so about... I, oh, go ahead. No, no, please. Well, I just, I've been thinking a lot about that generation. Uh, Our former board president and co-founder, Lavelle Williams, uh, passed away in late 2018. And he was a local musician and he had just turned 51 at that time. He would be 53 now. Uh, And I I think a lot about that generation that uh, really grew up after the rebellion post-60s, don't really have direct memories of the 60s, really grew up in, you know, came of age during the time of Coleman, right? Uh, yeah. Of, of Mayor Young. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Coleman Young was the mayor. Almost yeah. my whole, my whole life, <laughs> pretty much. What What are some and, of uh, your, oh, go ahead. What are some of your musical memories of, of the 70s in Detroit? That would have been the time you would have come online uh, in terms of a, having memories, right, of, of, of things. So what yeah. were some of those musical memories? Well, growing up in Detroit, um, the first thing that you're sort of aware of, you become immediately aware of as a young aspiring musician is really the Motown legacy. Because at, at that time, I thought, uh, before I traveled the world, I started traveling in the mid-80s as a teenager. I didn't realize how profound Motown was. Mm-hmm. But as a, a kid growing up in Detroit, you are aware that, you know, you see constantly, you see late at night, the Motown Review performances on television. And you are made aware early also in the schools through your music teachers and everyone of that legacy and that all those people are from Detroit. And you're particularly proud. And then as I start to travel around the world uh, through camps and other things and touring Europe, I realized that those folks were world famous and that even heightened my pride as a Detroit musician, but also there's a strong legacy of jazz in the schools because we had people like Marcus Belgrave and Herbie Williams and Teddy Mm -hmm. Harris Jr. And Donald Walden and Kenny Cox and all those people would go through uh, different organizations and perform in the school system. So right. you're aware of the, you become aware very early of the Detroit jazz legacy as well. And that's a profound part of 
know your psyche and your thoughts about it. But also we used to, the Detroit Symphony did a great job of doing outreach in the school. We had a, a lady named Ollie McFarlane, who was the director of music, who I knew very well as a kid. And Miss McFarlane had a, a partnership with the Detroit uh, Symphony. And we would go once a year as a, a young aspiring musician to see the symphony. And so that had a profound effect on your on your mind and how you thought about the world and how you thought about music. And it was, it was beautiful. And I remember Joseph Stripling being the only African-American member, member of the DSO. And that had like, that made, gave me a sense that maybe one day I could be a symphony musician and study. And, uh, and music was everywhere. I mean, I remember as a kid singing vocal music in elementary school and going all the way K-12 studying music. And my real education and most of the things that I learned that prepared me for a career was what I learned in high school. I had a conservatory education at Martin Luther King High School. And, I, and, I, and the other thing I would add, mm-hmm. I had a great music teacher um, named Ed Quick and Jerome Stassen, who were the orchestra teacher and band teacher at my high school. They taught me how to read scores and music theory. And I had an artist in resident, the Michigan Council for the Arts, sponsored at all the major high schools, a jazz artist in resident. And that's where the all jazz club right. did me in high school. And that was uh, Herbie Williams, who was my mentor and lifelong mentor and teacher. And one last other thing. I Please. started. I really started playing jazz from uh, Hosea Taylor, who was a band teacher at Amos Robinson. And then also uh, with Donald Washington with the group called Bird Train Now I grew up with James Carter. We played together as kids. And my wife, Cookie, was in the group as well. But um, so Detroit, I, I, it put, my experience of being a young Detroit musician really prepared me for the world. Bird Train Sco. I've seen some of the pictures of uh, that crew uh, online. Uh, and there is a recording running around. There are some recordings. Yeah, there, there's a recording. I didn't. I actually had left the group. I think the recording was made in 1985, and I left the group uh, just before they made the recording. So Why? Was, at, that, yeah. at that point, I was so busy playing gigs with Kenny Cox and Marcus Belgrave and Donald Walden and all those folks. I was 17 when they made the recording. Right. So why, uh, 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 Ronnie? Why the bass? Other day, I, I was originally a, my first instrument. I played trumpet for one day, and it made my cheeks and my, you know, lymph nodes hurt so bad trying to blow the trumpet. I lasted one day, and I wanted to. I really wanted to play trumpet because sort of my first musical hero as a kid was Louis Armstrong, and I remember seeing Louis Armstrong on TV as a kid and how much joy, how happy I would have meet. I didn't, you know, I didn't know much about jazz, but I knew Louis Armstrong. Mm-hmm. We began to call him Louis now, but when we were a kid, it was Louis Armstrong. He would be on television all the time. For, I remember seeing him from maybe like two. I remember images of seeing him on TV. And my mother said I would gravitate. I would get excited from seeing him on TV. And um, so I wanted to play the trumpet because I knew Louis Armstrong played trumpet but it made my jaws hurt. So I went to the, to the uh, music teacher the next day uh, and said, 
my music teacher's name was Clarence Sherman, Clarence Sherrill, Sherrill, I think, Clarence Sherrill, who I found out later was the principal bass of the Windsor Symphony. And mm. I went to him and I said, uh, well, you know, I don't have enough wind to play the trumpet. So then he put me in the violin class. So my f- real first instrument was the violin, and that was at age seven. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, got, I got really serious about the violin, and I played that till 13. And then my teacher um, um, in middle school made me switch to, to bass. And he said, uh, one day I would make some money playing the bass, and I would travel around the world. And I liked the way that sounds, so I switched to bass. I think that's, uh, I think you, what you're, what you're helping us think about is just, and, and this is something as music lovers from Detroit, we know, we, we know intuitively the importance of the bass, but I think interviewing you and Marion early on in our interview series, I think has just reminded uh, us, Detroit Sound Conservancy, of about how important the legacy of the bass is. The Bluebird obviously was a place where I mean, James Jamerson went to Northwestern High School, so he grew up, you know, was right nearby. Uh, Paul Chambers, Barbara Cox, Ken Cox's wife and uh, co-founder of the Society of the Culturally Concerned, remembers vividly uh, Paul Chambers uh, playing on that Bluebird stage that we salvaged with his back foot on the steps and, you know, falling off the the stage because it was so small. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think there's a deep, deep legacy there that uh, we would be remiss if we didn't foreground, you know, the bass as a crucial, a crucial piece of, of music making in the city now going back, you know, 60, 70, 80 years now, uh, if not more. Well, part of it, part of it is that there is um, a a rich heritage of string playing and there's really three cities in the United States where the best bass players come from because of the string training is really uh, Detroit, Philadelphia, and Chicago. And if you look at uh, most of the bass players who are the top bass players in the world are from one of those three cities consistently. And that's going all the way back to probably the 1920s. Right. It's, it's heavy, and it's and part of the reason why a lot of us end up playing bass. If you really track and talk to bass players, most people start off on violin or cello, mm-hmm. and what happens is um, the teachers think that you're serious and that you have musical ability and that you can probably have a career, and they don't see any possibility of you having a career as a violinist because at that time. Again, when I was a kid, there was one Detroit Symphony member that was African-American. That was Joseph Strickland, who's mm-hmm. a product of Cass Tech and Detroit Public Schools. But again, there's one one symphony player out of out of probably, you know, 40, 50 string players that's African-American. And right. it's one violinist. And so people, I think a lot of us have a similar story. I mean, same thing with Charles Mingus. He was a cellist and wanted to be a classical cellist and his friend, Buddy Collette, urged him to learn how to play bass so he could play jazz and have a career as a musician. Do you have regrets about that? I mean, as we're just talking about it, I mean, I, I don't want to make, uh, we don't obviously don't, um, obviously in an issue of social justice, 
in a perfect world, right? Your talent and your interest and your work ethic and your passion would be the only cards you would need, right? For uh, a career. So do you have regrets about not being uh, something specific or yeah, anything no, you want to say? No, I played violin. It's just, I played violin still. I said bass violin. Right. I have no regret. I played with everybody I wanted to play with. I've been to Europe over 200 times, Japan 100 times. I played on 200 recordings. So no, no regrets. I've had mm-hmm. a blessed life. I've, <laughs> I've done everything. I'm a university distinguished professor. I've done everything that I want to do. I, but, but the thing is, I would like there to be a world where people could be what they want to be if they're willing to work hard and not base, not have to make decisions based on what opportunities or how limited opportunities are, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. It does. Absolutely. It does. Let's, let's, let's segue here. Talk a little bit about just briefly the impact of the current crisis. We talked about earlier, you said you were healthy. We obviously send our health and our, uh, you know, safety to you and your family. In terms of your career and the projects you were working on in 2020, how has COVID-19 and the government's, let's, let's try to be charitable, the government's reaction, uh, uh, how has it impacted uh, uh, your work and career this year? Well, you know, and uh, I, I've, I've had a busy, very busy year as a musician, touring and playing up until March. And I had actually just returned uh, from California a week before this all. I was out recording, doing the recording and and a little bit of touring in California right before the pandemic started and um, right before we really went into quarantine. But things were already beginning because I was traveling and people were afraid and staying. I was in hotels and and a lot of people. I encountered a lot of sick people. And I'm not sure whether they had the, the virus or not, but certainly people, a lot of people had the flu. Mm-hmm. Really starting, uh, when I, I started touring last summer, I, I went to Australia in August and back to Australia again in September and to Europe twice, to Paris for 10 days. So I did a lot of international travel and just mm-hmm. encountered like a lot of really sick people from, from starting about November, I started to see a lot of people that were ill around the mm-hmm. world and there was a flu epidemic going on globally. And so really worried and really paying attention to my health and, and trying to eat right and do all that sort of stuff. But uh, a lot of, uh, most of my performances, all of my performances from, which I had quite a few with my own sex tech, but also um, as a side person playing with other people and making recordings, doing things like that all got canceled all the way till July. Mm-hmm. So I was booked all the way from, from March uh, all the way till pretty much August. So I had like a year of dates that got interrupted. And then right at the time this all started to go was when I was in the plan, phase to plan for the, the next year. Cause you usually start booking six months out right. for the next year. And so a lot of those plans are altered too. So people stop calling just because they, they're trying to make up for things that they had to cancel or postpone. Most people postpone. 
So I have a lot of things that I'll, and whenever things start back, I'll have some bookings that I already, and contracts that I already signed that will, that will happen. But fortunately for me, I have a day job. I'm a university professor. Right. And that provides me. So I'm still teaching and still doing administrative work. I'm director of jazz studies at Michigan State. So I'm still doing that part of, of, of my job. But it's, it's a, a lot of my friends are devastated economically um, mm-hmm. and are struggling. And, um, and, and fortunately for New York musicians, they have a leader like Winston Marcellus, who, who is the chair of the Louis Armstrong Foundation and mm-hmm. gave a million dollars away to the jazz community. They have means. I haven't seen that kind of advocacy yet in Metro Detroit. And I've been calling folks, asking people if anything is being done, but I'd like to see that. But, you know, I'm financially, you know, I, I don't want to use the word secure, but I'm, I'm okay. Mm-hmm. You know, my bills are paid and I have, I, I'm good at saving money, so I'll be able to save, pay my bills for months to come. And I still have a job. Yeah. But um, everybody's worried. Nobody knows what the future. And you know, it would it would it would be nice, you know, not to be hard on anyone. But really, I think what we need is leadership, and we need someone giving us clear truth every evening on the six o'clock news. Right. And I think that's the thing that's lacking the most is just that it's uncertain, and we just we're not getting it's confusion and conspiracy theories and all sorts of crazy sort of stuff, but we just got, we'll, we'll get through this. And the sad part for me is that my mom lives in Detroit in a nursing home, Mm. ended up getting the virus and ended up on the ventilator, but she's back in the nursing home doing well. Mm. So it wasn't her time. Thank God. We're sorry to hear about that. We're glad she's better, but you know, the ventilator stuff is, is awful. That's hard to go through, a body and a mind to go through that. So we, we you know, we send our best to your family there. Thank you. Um, in our time left, uh, there's so much to talk about. I, I At some point, we should talk again. I'd love to talk more specifically about the band that you led. I mean, I, you were talking earlier about Lincoln Center. You guys uh, did well this last year with the band uh, at Lincoln Center. Um there's so many good things that you're doing, and we will link to those on our website so that people can learn more uh, about what you do in your day-to-day. If you've got some links, I know you'll share them, and we can put those in with sure. the piece so people can know who you are. But in our time left, I want to just segue back to the Bluebird. The Bluebird yeah. Inn began in the, in, in <laughs> the 1930s. Uh, it had live music really very early. Uh, it really started off in sort of a blues and, quote, uh, swing music in quotes, uh, very in the thirties and forties, but eventually became a bebop, uh, uh, paradise. If you were, uh, a training ground, uh, for many musicians, some who are still with us, people like Barry Harris. Um, but to, and, and then another generation that came on the fifties and sixties, uh, and, and many people came through there. It, Live music went away from it for many years. When you were when you were first starting up, my sense is there wasn't a lot of live music at the bird at that time. It sort of gotten away from with it, uh, had gotten away from it for a while. But in the 1990s, Mary Eddins uh, uh, tried to put together a little renaissance uh, uh, with the club, and you were brought in um, to perform. Can you just talk a little bit about 
performing at the Bluebird in the 1990s, how that came about, just anything about that experience uh, uh, of your time at the Bird. Well, what happened, how I began to perform at the Bluebird is that I got a call from the Carytown Concert House in Ann Arbor to do a, um, a performance with Tommy Flanagan, who is, of course, a Detroit native and one of the stellar pianists of all time. Yep. And uh, Tommy, Tommy Flanagan contacted me and said, do I know a, know a drummer that could do this gig with, uh, with him? And I got a great drummer from Detroit named Gerald Cleaver, who was living in town. And at that time, both of us were teaching at the University of Michigan. And I was also teaching at Michigan State as an adjunct at both places. And um, this was just after the time I played with Roy Hargrove. So it was in the mid-90s. And so we did like a maybe like a three-city tour in the Midwest with Tommy Flanagan. And then later that spring, Tommy contacted us to say, Hey, you know, I'm coming back. I'm supposed to play at the Bluebird. Would you be interested in playing with the, you and Gerald interested in playing? So we played with him for, I think, three nights or so at the Bluebird, a Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. And it was really successful. And there was a guy named Carl, who I can't remember Carl's last name, who grew Hill. up hanging at the Carl Hill. That's right. Yep. Carl said, said to me, hey, you know, um, Maybe you ought you ought to you know, take this over and and do something you know be the house band. So that's how it started, just from performing with Tommy Flanagan, and uh, it was an incredible experience. And we did it. We did it. You know, I maybe I was only there maybe for about six months, and um, it was great because at that time teaching at the two schools, a lot of the young players from both Michigan State and um, University of Michigan would come down on the weekend and hang out. And this was a lot of their first experience. People like Randy Napoleon and Sasha Vonsendani and, and uh, Diego Rivera, all these people went on to become great jazz musicians. They kind of, for six months, spent a lot of time at the Bluebird. And, um, but it, you know, it was a challenge. It was a challenge to do. It was an incredible experience. And, I became really aware of that legacy. And I, and a lot of info, I, kind of, I knew a lot about the club because of Kenny Cox and Margaret Cox. They were mentors of mine, and I met them probably when I was 15, when I met both of them through the group Bird Train School. Now, Kenny's son, Philip, he played drums in the group Bird Train School now. So that's how I met Kenny Cox. And Kenny would come and work with us a lot. And so I, so I knew a lot about that club and love the legacy and saw photos at their house. They had great photo album of things from, about the Bluebird. But um, it, was, it was an incredible experience, but it became a challenge because a lot of the people who, who grew up there and supported the bar, who would come there and drink, even when there wasn't music, didn't want to pay to hear music. Mm -hmm. and, at that time, they, you know, they didn't have a lot of money. So at one point, I was really kind of supporting it financially and depending on, depending on the money from the door to pay the musicians. And that became like problematic and a challenge. So I ended up um, becoming the, doing the same thing at Burt's Place, which was a lot easier because people were used to paying to get in the club. So that was, but it was, for me, it was great because my wife, grew up in that neighborhood. The first house I bought was in the same neighborhood. So I lived in that neighborhood for years and years before 
be before they started presenting live jazz again and always would stop in there. Uh, even when I wasn't old enough to drink, I'd just walk in and walk in the door and check out, look at the club and check out the ambiance. And, uh, but that was the one of the, the neighborhood that I bought a house in when I first bought a house in Detroit. And uh, what street, Rodney? I lived on, uh, uh, what is the name? Oregon. Yep. Oregon between, uh, what's, what's the, I can't remember the cross streets there, but Oregon between Colfax and, what is it, Colfax and, man, it's Colfax. And my, in fact, my mother-in-law lived, of, lived across the street from me. Amazing. So my wife grew up, my wife went to Northwestern High School, Chad there you High go. School, Weber Middle School, which yep. is right across from the club. Yep. So right that, there. that that neighborhood is dear to me, and uh, yep. and I owned a house there up until about 2005. Tell me one thing about the Bluebird. You've obviously played many many clubs uh, around the world. I recently had the opportunity to go to Dizzy's Club as part of Lincoln Center. They're <coughs> small. They're smaller venue there. Uh, you know, which is sort of comparably the size of the Bluebird, though very differently shaped and very different yeah. sort of atmosphere and different acoustics, etc. But where does the Bluebird, in terms of just its space, the uh, being on that stage, you've been on that bandstand. It's a fairly unique uh, bandstand, but you've been around the world. Tell us, what's the Bluebird? Uh, yeah, give it a little compare with some of the places you, you have played. You know, the, the thing about the Bluebird, you know, I played jazz clubs all over the world, and I've never played a bit place the two best place jazz clubs with the best acoustics in the world are both in Detroit. And the two best places with the best acoustics, number one would be the Bluebird. I never played in a place that's sonically perfect for jazz. And the, and it, the ir, ir, irony of it is the stage is too small. But I think if you had a different stage, it would change the sound. And so that stage projects the sound a certain way. And you really don't need any amplification in that club. You could play a set without miking anything. And there's hardly any other club in the world that you could do that. Even Dizzy's Club, Coca-Cola, all those places that were designed by acousticians don't match the sound of the Bluebird. And the second best club in the world with the best acoustics is Baker's Keyboard Lounge. And they're both in Detroit, Michigan. It's, it's something I don't know what science went into it or whether it was just an accident, <laughs> but it, it has, I think uh, that it should be refurbished just so that acousticians and, and engineers can come and, and, uh, and study the acoustics of that room. Cause it's perfect. There's not a bad seat in the place. I sat there many nights that when I was a music director there for that six months and I, uh, and I sat in different places at the bar and the different seats in the place. And you can hear perfectly everywhere in the club. And were you microphoned at that time? I was using, I was using a mic only, no amplifier, but just a, just a mic in the, the little sit. They had a little system in there, but I played in there with Tommy Flanagan with no amplification. So it was just acoustic piano and drums and bass, and you could hear perfect. Mr. Whitaker, uh, Professor, uh, I really appreciate you talking to me today. 
Uh, I think this is the, uh, you know, you and I have been talking briefly about, you know, last year or two. Uh, but I think uh, with what you said today, I think, you know, um, we're hopefully going to have some success, hopefully with some grants for the Bluebird. You know, we really believe in the project and um, we're just very happy to be in touch with you uh, as a as a as someone who has uh, ear witness, <laughs> an ear witness to that room mm. and that experience. And uh, it's also still a practicing musician. You know what you're talking about and you understand what it means right now. It's very, it's very powerful for us. So uh, appreciate you. Uh, anything last you want to say here? Well, I appreciate the work that you're doing and anything I could do to support it. Let me know. I'll be there. Uh, Rodney Whitaker, everybody. Uh, this has been Sonic Solidarity with Detroit Sound Conservancy. Today's episode of Sonic Solidarity was recorded and produced by myself, Carlton Goals. It was edited and engineered by Detroit Sound Conservancy's projects manager, Jonah Raiden Silverstein. Our theme music was performed by bassist Marion Hayden and saxophonist Deshaun Jones in front of the legendary Bluebird Inn, Detroit, Michigan, 2019.